Hi, everybody. Welcome to Sapphic Culture Club, where we explore lesbian themes in film, TV, books, music, and anywhere else, Sapphic's Rome. We are your hosts. I'm Laura Hachinova. And I'm Audrey This is one of our bonus episodes where we discuss a movie that isn't on the top 10 list, but we think it deserves a spot. And that movie is... Drum roll, please, Laurel. Oh, wow. That's really nice. That's <laughs> like some gay ASMR shit. <laughs> Great. It's the Watermelon Woman, which hey. you already knew because I'm assuming that the description of this episode <laughs> yeah. was titled... Yeah, anyway. I don't know. Maybe they just... Ooh. automatically play they just see the the podcast i guess it's possible cover, and that's so sweet thank you yeah <laughs> <Just> don't <laughs> even look at what we're going to talk about and jump right in true fans <laughs> this is an important classic piece of lesbian cinematic history it's the first u.s feature directed by an out black lesbian and it was recently cheryl dunier's birthday on may 16th Happy birthday. So happy birthday to Cheryl, if you are listening to this podcast, which you probably are, because why wouldn't you? No. (laughs) Now I'm nervous. So great. (laughs) (laughs) So a few disclaimers before we jump in. The usual ones, of course. So these have all been episodes about films, which means we're going to be talking about the films in their entirety. So this is just a giant episode-sized spoiler, (laughs) and we are going to read some stuff that you have sent in. If we slaughter your name or your username, we apologize in advance. I know. It's just when I see butcher, it's like they're they're basically synonyms, so... (laughs) I feel like slaughter is is a little bit more severe than butchering. Is it? But what I'm visualizing, yes. If we mispronounce <laughs> your name or your username, we apologize in advance. No, no, no. It's slaughtering is fine too. I mean, that's probably what we w- we would do. <laughs> that sounds like we're just trying to say their name, and it comes it comes out as like fart noises bloody. or something. Oh, or bloody. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so, if you haven't seen the Watermelon Woman, just Pause right now, travel back to 1996, and watch it on a video cassette <laughs> or a laser disc. I don't know. You can also stream it on Canopy. That's Canopy with a K, K A N O P Y, which I didn't know. Thank you so much to Baby for pointing this out, but it is a free streaming service that you can have access to if you have a library card. So if you don't have a library card, go get a library card and you can access Canopy. Also, if you're a student, that's available to you. The service is free for users, but content owners and creators are paid on a pay-per-view model by the institution. So if you hate free things and library, you can also catch The Watermelon Woman on Showtime or Hulu with a premium subscription, or you can rent it from Apple TV, at least in the United States. And there's definitely... Is it available on Criterion? I tried to find it on yeah. Criterion. I thought it was because it was added it's to... available in the collection, I think. Is it? I searched on their site and when I... What? When you look for Watermelon anything, it just pulls up Watermelon Man. Hmm. And yeah. so... I don't know. Maybe it's streaming, but I couldn't find it in the collection. So they did an interview with her too, so I'm surprised. Okay. Well, so it may or may not be on Criterion. Yep. If someone could find that out and let us know, I would appreciate it. Before we jump into the fruit of the episode, before we get into the watermelon woman, we have a couple of things to jump back into with Desert Hearts. We've got a correction that I need to make. It's a very big correction. (laughs) And then we also have some listener mail to share. So I'm going to start with the correction. I said that Allie's rating for Desert Hearts was four out of five cactuses or cacti because she handed her rating to me on a piece of paper and she had drawn... One not shriveled cactus <laughs> and then like four shriveled cactuses. I I don't remember. But anyway, her no, actual. No, no, three, three sh- oh, shriveled. Three? Yeah. Okay. So that's why I think you oh, thought. Because right. I think we were doing like on a scale of five. Yeah, that's right. so okay. you thought it was yeah, like yeah. four out of five. Okay. But you described it well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so she said, just to be clear, I gave Desert Hearts one out of five cactuses. <sighs> I started with four out of five in my mind before even watching it because of it being such an iconic film in the lesbian world. I figure it had to be at least four out of five. Even as the film began, I was excited and into it. Initially, it gave me the vibe of Dirty Dancing, which I really like. For every time Kay forced herself on Vivian, a cactus shriveled and died. (laughs) 
Overall, I was very disappointed and hated that as a popular lesbian film and one of the very few at the time, it basically tells people, if you like someone, take your titties out. <laughs> Actually, she wrote tittles. Take your, t- oh, your tittles out <laughs> to force them to like you. And it works. So the correction is that she did not rate it four out of five. She rated it one out of five. Ooh. <laughs> wow, that's really different. I feel like there that was so much different. context that, Ali, you didn't provide with your reading <laughs> that we really needed. There was like this whole backstory. And I gave it a very optimistic interpretation. I know. So. I know. You were like, oh, there's room for... <laughs> there's room for growth. There's potential know. or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, it was really one out of five. <laughs> this is actually a good film to juxtapose with what we're going to be talking about today because... This is like deep 80s lesbian cinema, you know, compared to The Watermelon Woman, which is really at the heart of the queer new wave movement in film, which is, I think, in many ways, a direct response to what Ali is talking about, which probably could be boiled down to the internalized male gaze. But anyway, thank you, Ali, for clarifying your rating. Related to that, we received a really thoughtful email from Mary, who says, here's my quote unquote owl thoughts about the sexual dynamic between the repressed air quotes possibly straight (laughs) New York professor and the free spirit completely out lesbian in Reno in the 1950s. At first viewing 1986, I did not see Kay's advances as air quotes again assaultive, (laughs) but rather brazen and her desire as insistent in the face of the hesitancy and fear of being gay in Vivian's responses. I agree that Helen Shaver played Vivian as too repressed or shut down for the audience to see clearly the desire that Kay believed was reciprocal. Somehow she seemed to know she had to persevere and not give up on Vivian in order for the love to blossom. Vivian seemed like a woman who couldn't let herself be herself. I can say as a woman who came out to self in the late 60s and to a woman I desired in the early 70s, who said she was hesitant and although she felt what I did, she did not want to be gay, that the feelings of the push slash pull in Desert Hearts mirrored my reality of how very scary it was to go for it. I thought they captured Kay's sureness about lesbian desire and Vivian's wanting to hide from her feelings pretty well. FYI, I went the more talky route. I was no K. (laughs) (laughs) Winky face. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that insight. Yeah, that was really great. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Having come out in the 90s, I had a lot more privilege and definitely didn't have this experience. So um, appreciate this kind of like firsthand encounter. Yeah. It almost feels like that could totally be the inner monologue that was happening in either woman was just that that sort of internal push-pull feeling that desire is there even if we as the audience didn't necessarily see it all the time yeah I think you're right and I think like we talked about this a little bit last time about how like kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. and not taking yeah. it at face value like that was where I, I want to believe that that's what they were trying to convey whether or not it was successful I think is a different right a different story but yeah I appreciate the, the take anyway and maybe it was more successful at the time, right? I think we did say mm. something like this, but you know, with the lenses that we have now, it wasn't as apparent, I guess, as say portrait is about equality sure. between yeah. partners. Totally. Okay. So yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Allie and Mary, for writing in. All right. Let's get into the watermelon woman. So A little bit of an overview. It was released in February 1996. It premiered at the Berlin International Film Festival, and it had its U.S. release March of the following year, so 1997. It was written, directed, written by, and it starred Cheryl Dunier, who you may know more often as a TV director, as she has done a lot of recent high-profile shows, uh, Queen Sugar, Dear White People, Lovecraft Country, Why the Last Man, Bridgerton Season 2, etc., etc. Cinematography by Michelle Crenshaw. I think the most recent thing that you can catch her cinematography in would be Pride, the TV uh, limited series documentary. But she's done a ton of assistive camera work or camera operator work with credits ranging from like both or the the first two home alones to friday uncle buck grumpy old man and but then all the way up to like gray's anatomy and then so the more recent stuff gray's anatomy and 
one of Hannah Gadsby's specials. So that's pretty cool. She's still working. And I want to talk about the cinematography later. So I thought she did really good work with The Watermelon Woman. It is starring Valerie Walker as Tamara Lisa Marine Bronson as Faye or the Watermelon Woman herself. Guinevere Turner, who you might recognize from things like The L Word, where she played Gabby. I think she was Gabby. So I thought this was weird, but I didn't realize that she worked on the screenplay for American American Psycho. Mm-hmm. She was in Go Fish, I think with her partner at the time. And also Chasing Amy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel yeah. like she's been around in the lesbian multiverse for a while. Yeah, yeah. So the movie takes place in present-day, mid-90s Philly, where Cheryl Dunier grew up. Yeah, it was really cool to see a film set in Philly. I never lived there, but Heather had a residency there for a little while, like more recently in the last 10 years. So I've spent Mm. a bunch of time there, and it's one of my favorite cities. And the film just felt like very, very Philly. There's a lot of locals, I think, who have cameos in the movie. And so it's just cool to see this community that I think Cheryl's like really built around her filmmaking. Yeah. So let's add a little bit of context and talk about what else was out at this time, lesbian and otherwise. Some things that came out in the same year include some sapphic things that came out in the same year include I Shot Andy Warhol, Foxfire, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, um, Fire, as well as Bound. This is like... I feel like a really good time for yeah. lesbian cinema, queer cinema in general. In 1987, so the year this was released in the States, there's It's in the Water, All Over Me, as well as Laurel's favorite, Chasing Amy. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so we just talked about Kiss Me, and I think we could only find like a couple other yeah. mainstream and indie films that came out, like lesbian films that came out around the same time. So it's really fascinating to kind of follow this like graph, I guess, of lesbian films. But this was like sort of smack dab in the middle of the queer new wave. So it makes sense, I guess, that there was more coming out, especially like indie films. If we want to expand that lens a little (laughs) bit, maybe we don't. The top grossing films, at least in the United States at the time, were Men in Black, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, Liar Liar, Air Force One, Star Wars, the 1997 special edition. Yeah, I don't know. My Best Friend's Wedding and one of Celine's favorite movies, <laughs> Titanic. I'm actually so. surprised Titanic wasn't higher. Like, I just kind of assumed it was the number one. Like, yeah. Oh, is this an order? That year? It was. I, I grabbed wow. it from like one of those box what? office lists. Wait, did it just like stick around for an Maybe, extra year? Yeah, and that's, why that's it's so probably low? what happened, it, I think. I feel like it definitely was. Okay, so that was the initial theatrical run. Hmm. It stayed in theaters for almost 10 months before finally closing in 1998. So maybe it did better then? Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it was it's like fine. huge. <laughs> literally, yeah, let's stop talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> but at least two of these films were queer-ish. My Best Friend's Wedding and Titanic, my favorite lesbian oh. <laughs> disaster film. <laughs> You're like, what, which ones? Your first one? <laughs> or Liar Liar? Oh, you know those gay dinosaurs in uh, yeah, Lost World? Yeah. yeah, so we're just setting the scene for you. Okay, so let's go over this synopsis. <laughs> so Cheryl Dunier plays a version of herself named Cheryl, who is a 25-year-old lesbian who works as a video store clerk and event videographer along with her friend Tamara. Cheryl is a film nerd and budding filmmaker who's particularly interested in movies from the 30s and 40s featuring black actresses, many of whom are not credited in these roles. She finds this film from the 30s called Plantation Memories and becomes obsessed with one of the characters whom she describes as, quote unquote, the most beautiful mammy and was only credited as the Watermelon Woman. Cheryl, who's been looking for a film project, decides to make a documentary in which she attempts to uncover the true identity of the Watermelon Woman. So you have a film within a film, but really there's like three films, I feel like, Mm -hmm. within each other. So she goes on this journey uh, interviewing people for her documentary, including her mother, who is played by her mother, her real-life mother, Irene, I think is her name, Mm -hmm. who remembers seeing the Watermelon Woman singing in clubs in Philly, she also interviews her mother's lesbian friend, Shirley, whom Cheryl learns the watermelon woman's real name from, which is Faith or Faye Richards. 
And she also finds out that Faye was a lesbian who used to sing in lesbian clubs in the area. And I think her full real name was like Faith Richardson. And oh, then sorry, her, Richardson. Yeah. yeah, you're right. And then she would go by Faye Richards, I think, as like a stage name. Right. Cher also learns that Faye was in a relationship with the white female director of Plantation Memories. Who was played by her partner at the time, Alexandra Junets. Side note, my friend Nikki took a class from her partner Ooh. at Pomona. A film studies class because she was also in film. Ah, great. So Cheryl also interviews Camille Paglia, who has a kind of cameo role here, who does an amazing parody of, I don't know if I should say herself or just like an academic. She visits the Center for Lesbian Information and Technology, (laughs) otherwise known as CLIT, where she finds a bunch of archive photos of Faye. And she also learns about Faye's partner, June, here. So while working on the dock... Cheryl begins dating Diana, a white customer she meets, a white customer she meets at the video <laughs> store, played by Gwenevere Turner. And this relationship starts to parallel a bit that of Faye and the director she was dating, with Cheryl's BFF, Tamara, questioning her for dating a white woman who appears to fetishize black women. And is also pretty, we, we find out like during a dinner conversation that she's pretty privileged, like Martha Page. And then Diana later helps Cheryl get in touch with Martha Page's sister. So Martha Page is actually the name of, yeah, like Laurel just mentioned, the um, director of Plantation Memories. What was it? Plantation Mm -hmm. Memories. Yeah. Yeah. And her sister denies that Martha was a lesbian. So this leads to a very awkward interaction where Cheryl's like, no, she was a lesbian. And then um, (laughs) Diana's like clearly very uncomfortable here. And I feel like this was kind of like the beginning of the end of the relationship, if not the end end mm-hmm. okay so cheryl eventually reaches out to june walker who was faye's partner when she passed and arranges to meet her to talk about faye for the documentary but when cheryl gets to her place she learns that she was just hospitalized but june leaves a letter for cheryl where she expresses anger at placing any focus on martha page in her documentary when she should be telling faye's story without the white noise, so to speak. <laughs> Cheryl and Diana break up. This happens off camera. Cheryl just talks about it. And things are pretty, also pretty rocky with Tamara by the end, but I feel like you get the sense that they'll actually be able to weather that. Prophetically, Cheryl ends the film talking to the camera, or June, I guess she's, she's kind of like directing this to June, but also to us with, quote, I am a black lesbian filmmaker who's just beginning, but I'm going to say a lot more and have a lot more work to do. So I was like, whoa, (laughs) how did you know? (laughs) And this leads into kind of like the beginning of her documentary where we also learn Faye Richardson was not a real person, which I don't think it's like totally clear to you. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. like I don't I never got the sense that she was like trying to pull one over on us during the film. But I do think, like, the first time I watched it, I did not know. Like, I didn't realize until the end that she was fictional. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And scene. (laughs) Yay. Great. So the Watermelon Woman has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Is that the critics score or the audience? It's the tomato meter. So I think that's that's critics. Okay, yeah. You know what the audience score is? No. Do I want to know? It's 53%. Oh. That's fucked up. It is fucked up. I feel like that's some QAnon shit or something. That's like... <laughs> well, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of an acquired taste if you're going backwards, especially. Like, if you haven't... If you're not used to seeing independent film where the acting the is 90s. a little choppy yeah. and, like, the editing is a little rough. Yeah, I mean, it's her first film. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also feel like, who is going back to watch this without that kind of context i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah so it's kind of it's a little surprising it feels a little rigged to me personally the 53 percent. yeah and yeah i wouldn't be surprised if someone tanked it on purpose so some of the reviews at the time we couldn't find too many but they're generally favorable from sf gate for all the serious issues the watermelon woman tackles the film never takes itself too seriously Dunier has infused it with a lightness that seems to match her spirit. The review also compares Guinevere Turner to Rupert Everett, a knockout who is the female answer to Rupert Everett, a lesbian who plays gay roles. Okay, whatever. So this is 
an excerpt from the New York Times review of the film. The Watermelon Woman is a loose-jointed movie that goes on such playful little tangents whenever it feels like it. In one scene, Cheryl, while filming on a city street, is accosted by police officers who mistake her for a man and call her a, quote, crackhead freak. This throwaway moment, which is played more for comedy than for political incitement, is typical of the film's refusal to bop you over the head with angry rhetoric. I just feel so weird about that because I'm like, why would you call that a throwaway moment? Like, I definitely didn't see it as that. Yeah. And there were definitely throwaway, like not, I wouldn't call them throwaway moments, but they were like little snacks in the movie where they would just like have a dance thing or, you know, just these little vignettes. But yeah, actually, I can see that it doesn't quite feel like part of the plot per se because I did think that like oh my gosh they probably confiscated her her camera and you know they're still paying money on that camera so this is going to be a big deal and then it wasn't like there nothing happened after that she was just kind of terribly harassed by the police and that was it but yeah it was an interesting thing to pull out the last review that we'll talk about is one that showed up in the Philadelphia City paper and it was a raving review it was by Janine DeLombard and this is kind of the at the time the most important thing to come out of that review which described the sex scene between cheryl and diana as quote the hottest dyke sex scene ever recorded on celluloid um and the reason that this quote is so important is it got the attention of a conservative newspaper at the time and a congressman who read the review and wrote a letter to the national endowment for the arts and because of this controversy and there were other movies at the time it wasn't just the watermelon woman but the watermelon woman was part of sort of the main focus of this this letter, this angry letter. I don't even think it went to trial. He threatened to take them to court over misuse of taxpayer funds, but I don't think it actually ever got there. And the NEA, for those of you who aren't familiar or don't live in the United States, is a federal agency that supports the arts. It funds arts projects, arts programs, and it's considered an independent agency, but its governing body, including its chairman, I believe, is still nominated by the president, and its budget is still controlled by Congress, so independent agency is kind of an interesting term for it. But anyway, so the NEA ended up restructuring itself by awarding grants to specific projects rather than giving the funding straight to art groups for disbursement, which is significant for a project like The Watermelon Woman, where the NEA grant ended up being around $30,000 or about 10% of the project's budget. So just, wow, just immediately bending over backwards because someone wrote you a letter that, you know, I don't know, it was really frustrating. And all of the stuff that the letter called out was about content that was gay And the congressman said that, oh, it's not the gay content that I'm concerned about. It's the explicit sex. And it's like the sex scene in The Watermelon Woman is so tame compared to, I feel like, so many straight sex scenes at the time. Oh, my God. And before. And it's just like, clearly there's a, you know, there's a very clear double standard there. So. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's so ridiculous. I mean, like all through the late 70s, 80s, early 90s, like when erotic thrillers yeah. were popular. God. I feel like the sex scenes were not only more sort of graphic, but also just like often non-consensual. Yeah, yeah. Obviously very male gazy, And so Ugh. it's so absurd that like this one lesbian film where you finally see like a sex scene through like a lesbian lens, it's like considered pornographic, you know? Right, 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 right. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into... Had you seen this before? I had seen it before, but embarrassingly, it wasn't until fairly recently, like in the last few years. I was very aware of it, not when it came out, but around that time, like shortly after. But I think that like similar to you, I had seen a lot of very traumatic lesbian films where, and queer films in general, like where, you know, it was like very barrier gaze and like everyone's Mm -hmm. dying. Yeah or being shamed. And so in my head, unfortunately, I had like at the time lumped this into that category and had, and it was stupid basically. (laughs) Yeah, no, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I didn't watch it until we were doing it for this episode. And like, I I just need to look into films more. Like, oh, if I had known that it was written and directed by a black lesbian, then hopefully that would have changed my mind about it. I actually saw, so we'll talk about her later, but 
the photos that Zoe Leonard and Cheryl Dunier worked on together as sort of like the archival found photos of Faye Richards in a museum before I saw this. And I didn't realize oh, wow. the connection. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah it was a... <laughs> was it in Philly? I don't... know. Th- I don't think so. I don't... Oh, maybe it was part of like... Was it like the Whitney or something? It might have been in either New York or Chicago. Okay. That's I can't so remember cool. where. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's <laughs> wow. like it kind of I got to the end of that exhibit and I didn't realize that this wasn't a real person until, it, mm. you know, I, I read the explainer at the end because I think they I don't know, maybe I went backwards or maybe they saved it for the end. But it kind of stuck with me. Like I had to like tour it again just to like look at the photos and with that in mind that like, oh, this a- this actually never happened. But it kind of stuck with me after seeing that and to know that the reason that they exist is because of this movie just kind of blows my mind. And there's a there's a book that I really want to get that's an album of these photos. Um, that's really cool. That's such a cool way to experience this because in a way you experienced the film yeah, very yeah. similarly because I feel like the audience probably the first time watching this also didn't know it, what, you know she wasn't a real person. Yeah. And also the film is all, it's so much about like observing there's some parallels to portrait here. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's more of a conversation between the observer and like the performer in a way than a lot of other films. And so it's cool that like you were even observing from like another layer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. There is so many. It, it kind of like after I finished watching the film, just thinking about it more, like the parallels between this and portrait really, really yes. sort of incredible to me. Like the maybe this isn't the time to get into it. I, I can't tell because it's just going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> here it comes. But like... <laughs> The, what did, what was the quote at the end that she says, like, sometimes you have to create your own history. Mm-hmm. The watermelon woman is is fiction. And it's like, that's exactly what Selena was doing yes. with Marianne, right? It's like she's an amalgamation of all these painters who existed before. And then she's like, nobody bothered to document them because they're not men, basically. Right. Um, and so Dunier putting together this Faye Richards person as kind of a an homage and a an er like i don't know what you'd call her um but like a a personification of all these people who definitely did exist but don't exist in in our known history is yeah. really incredible i can't believe that she did this in like her late 20s you know just the boldness of it and it's, it's her like first feature film really like, amazing yeah you know? yeah yeah i'm glad you brought up the parallels with portrait because even though it's not obvious like on the surface yeah yeah what they share in common I think there's so much, and maybe we can talk about this more later, but at the core, I feel like both Celine and Cheryl are sort of changing the paradigm of what a lesbian film can be. Mm-hmm. I feel like they're inventing something new. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, had Allie seen this before? No, she hadn't. Heather actually saw, she TA'd a queer studies class at Berkeley and they watched this in class, which is common. I think this is often shown in like film. Yeah. Great. Good. Yeah. And queer study courses. As it should be. Yeah. That is great to hear. I meant to mention this earlier, but Cheryl Dunier is also, I think she's been a professor. Maybe she is one mm. now. And she runs a production company out of Oakland called Town. She's like probably your neighbor. Yeah. Oh my God, is that her right there? Ah! Uh, <laughs> So, pretty cool. Oh my gosh. Nervous again. (laughs) So, we asked if you have seen this before, and our poll results are that 47% of you have, and 53% of you have not. It's actually maybe a little higher than I expected, especially because this was not on the top 10 list. Yeah, yeah. But I hope that number has gone up. Yeah, great. (laughs) Me too. Uh, we also asked when and where you saw it, if you did see it. Quite a few people saw it very recently, including Fad Desaurus, who just saw it two weeks ago. Yay! A friend lent it to them. We've got Mary, who saw it at the Castro Theater. At the premiere! At, at the Castro the Theater. Film festival premiere. That's great. This is the same Mary who wrote us earlier, so very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> With your dedication to lesbian cinema. Related to what we were just talking about, Taciturn Satellite saw the film in a queer film class in college. Great. And Mark 13, very appropriately, saw it as a video store rental. That's so cool. I love it. (laughs) Oh, I wish there were video stores just so we could rent this. There are. Probably are. They're they're not many left, but yeah. I hope they have the watermelon woman. Uh, Some additional thoughts you had include from Orla, who said, can't believe it's not appearing on more lists. It's excellent and funny and twisted. 
could not agree with you more, Orla. (laughs) So Sam says it's one of the most important movies on queer black history and intersectionality with gender. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Related to that, Fad Tesaurus said a great study of intersectionality between sexuality, race, and gender. Mm -hmm. Mary said awesome use of history. I agree. This is. Yeah. Stace Your Face said more people should watch it. Also Also agree. Well, Membrane says, incredible, the meta, Cheryl Dunier, fire emoji, the sex scene, fire emoji. I loved it all. Great. Yes. Okie dokie. Now our thoughts. Now for us. <laughs> now for us. Our Thank time to God. shine. Thank uh. God. It's our time, finally. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> this is an interview. <laughs> You watched it very recently for the first time yeah. this week, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. I am curious about your first impressions because, like, you probably had a lot of expectations going into it. Yeah. Yeah. How does it compare to, like, what you expected? I was going to say this earlier, but the fact that it's called The Watermelon Woman really sort of made me nervous because of the stereotype of watermelons and black people. So that right away was just like, oh, man, this is probably going to be really heavy, which I think... You know, just based on the the font for the poster and the expression on Cheryl's face in the poster image should have made me feel like it probably won't be that serious. And then I also know a lot about the film just in the periphery. I had heard so much more about the film than like I'd seen clips of it. But so I was walking in expecting it to be pretty indie feeling because I knew that it came out in the mid 90s. And outside of that, I wasn't sure what to expect. But once I got into it, it was interesting watching something in like 4-3 aspect ratio. Oh, it's like, yeah. oh, look at this little square. It's <laughs> so cute. <laughs> um, and then I think it starts out as sort of like VHS style videography at a wedding. And I was like, oh, is it going to be is it going to be like this the whole time? And so <laughs> when it, which is like, OK, you know, like I can I can settle into that. But then when it flipped to. Uh, sort of like the regular film cameras 16 millimeter yeah Yeah, it was really nice like it just uh it was gorgeous yeah yeah, i love how it shot the colors the lighting the warmth and everything so michelle crenshaw great job oh my gosh (laughs) and it was interesting to have them go back and forth between the the two types of shooting but yeah yeah that's actually on my list of why i love this film it's i mean it really switches between like three types of film in a way right oh yeah with like found footage too too. yeah the fictionalized like found footage black and white and then the 16 millimeter and the vhs yeah 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 yeah. i will say though that it took me a little bit to get used to the acting Mm -hmm. which reminds me a lot of like when i was in college and was helping people out with their with their film projects and then also the editing in some parts was like a little rough yeah like cutting in too soon or maybe yeah anyway like i can't really criticize though i don't know if like the movie improves over time and the acting improves over time or you just get acclimated but like by midway through i didn't notice it anymore but in the very (laughs) beginning i'm like wow they are (laughs) acting right yeah yeah for the camera yeah (laughs) i feel like i said this for desert hearts too but the first time i watched it i kind of was like wow like yes i get it this is really important but then it wasn't until next time which was this week this past week where i was like holy shit this is like kind of insane that this came out in the mid 90s yeah you know like yes it does have that diy sort of indie form and aesthetic of the of the 90s but there's so much about the film that i feel like was way ahead of its time and even to this day we don't have movies like it and i'll talk a little bit more about that in a second but when it opens with the wedding videography stuff, mm-hmm. immediately I was drawn in because in high school, I was a videographer for <laughs> wedding and events. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, I know this world. <laughs> yeah. It felt yeah, very yeah. Like, familiar to me. Yeah. Yeah. Also, first impression is like, wow, 90s. <laughs> like the vibe is. So- oh, yeah. So 90s. Like the outfits were great. Yeah. That's, oh, that's basically it. <laughs> The music was great. Yeah. yeah, the music was really good. The dyke bar, oh my oh, God, which, yeah. you know, that probably, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, that whole scene probably doesn't really exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this last uh, two weeks ago with the Delia's catalog, but like, it's so 90s, but it's also so now. Yeah. <laughs> People love that, like, I feel like the whole like Web 1.0, like yeah. video, choppy video aesthetic yeah. is yeah, yeah, yeah. really trendy. Glitchy looking. Yeah, totally. If you just kind of squint, it's like, when was this movie actually made? You know? Yeah, glitchy. Yeah. 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 
So let's talk about some of the stuff that we thought maybe could have been a little bit better and then we can get into the, the stuff that we loved about it. I think the only thing, and I already talked about it, was the acting. It never really kind of, there were parts where it went away and like, actually, I thought her mother was great. Oh, her mom was so The way good. that she did a lot of the, the talking head mm-hmm. interviews was great. But there were a lot of scenes where, especially when they were trying to have dialogue move the plot forward specifically, that it felt like, ooh, I can't, like, they would stumble over a line, but there wouldn't be a retake. And they would just yeah. keep the sort oh, of, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it didn't sound like normal speech, like stumbling through normal speech. It, no, it no, felt no. Like it felt like <laughs> I am tripping over my lines. Yes, like, yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's so true. that that yeah. kind of pulled me out all, all the time. But it also kind of it's an endearing, you know, because it's like, wow, this is this is someone's first film. And you can feel that it's someone's first film. I think also there were different kind of like gradations of it, I guess. Mm. I felt like her friend Tamara was like really I didn't feel like she was acting you know what I mean yeah like, yeah I thought she was she she did have like at, at least one trip up but yeah for the most part I thought yeah. she was really good yeah 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 for me one thing this isn't like a criticism of the film more, more like just talking about my personal re- reaction the first time I watched it I felt like Cheryl the character's relationship with Diana it felt kind of like not a throwaway, but it felt almost forced. Mm. I was like, why? I don't know why they need to even have a romantic relationship. Yeah, It kind of felt like she's this big film nerd and they couldn't get funding for a movie that was just about her making like a documentary, like a fake documentary. And so it's like they had to throw in this love interest. Yeah. But then on the second watch, I was like, no, it, it actually makes a lot of sense. Like even if for me, I didn't totally get it at the time. I feel like because of the fact that it parallels the two relationships, like that was important. You mean the the friendship and the room? Oh, oh, I no, see. no, no, with like Faye with Cheryl Richards and, and Di- yeah, exactly. Martha, yeah, yeah. I oh, feel like on great. second yeah, watch, yeah, yeah, I true. got it a little yeah. bit. I had such a bad experience watching Go Fish that, like, that's oh. what I associate Gwen Turner with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, anyway, I'm over it. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> no other real complaints. I wish I had caught that parallel while I was watching it this last time, because I think that's a really good thing to point out. And you're right, like the race and of course, it's like lesbian relationships. And then also like there's the class privilege in there, too, is that's a parallel in both relationships. Yeah. The only other thing was that and I think this is more a personal preference and something that has, I think, changed in my brain because I haven't watched indie movies in a long time. (laughs) But the pacing was got to me a little bit like just being fed netflix type movies or you know like modern tv is just like very snappy very sort of you know on to the next thing and this movie took its time a little bit more yeah and it, it had all these these scenes where it was just for fun you know and it was great and i'm glad those scenes are in there but my brain is like, what's happening? Why are we not like talking about, you know, the plot anymore right now? What's going on? So I don't know that I would say that that's a thing that I would improve or change about the movie. It's just something that I got hung up on during my watch. It's more a criticism of yourself. Yeah, it's, um, this is me <laughs> criticizing myself. Yeah. All right. Should we talk about things that we yes. loved yes. about The Watermelon Woman? There were some lines of dialogue that really that really got me. <laughs> they were really funny. Like, there's the scene where Tamara is... I think this is when Diana first appears, and Tamara's like, you think she's gay or whatever? And Cheryl's like, why are you always trying to clock women, you know, and figure out... Or whatever. And then Tamara's like, "Uh, we're lesbians, remember? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. The way she says it, too, is just... It's perfect. But she has a bunch. or And there's another scene in the video store where she doesn't want to meet up with Yvette anymore like she's just not into her and Tamara's like why and Cheryl's like I'm kind of into dating women with mental health right now oh. <laughs> it was like oh my gosh wow oh that comes back later right when they're yeah. having dinner with Diana and she says something about oh she came to from Chicago I think to Philly for her mental health and then oh yeah, Tamara yeah. was like oh that's oh, that's good great. because yeah. Cheryl loves women mental with mental health, health. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought up the humor because I feel like there were so many scenes where I was like, this is really funny. Like she, they get all these little subtle digs in, like they're talking about this lesbian film book who was written by like a guy and then someone, I can't remember who, but they were like, I wonder if he's a lesbian, (laughs) you know, stuff like that. But the funniest on the list of things that I loved about this film, 
So the two of them, Tamara and Cheryl, they use their privileges as, um, well, I don't, I don't know oh, if it's yeah. a privilege, but they get free film rentals by putting it under customers' names. They're working one day and the boss is like, can you let Diana, what's her name? Like, I can't remember her last name. Uh, Rollins or something. Roll, yeah, know yeah. that like all her, all the movies she rented came in except for Big, Big Bald. Bl- Ball busters or something, yeah. <laughs> Which is like something Tamara had rented and put in her name. And then there's this whole, of course, like Diana walks in at this very moment to like, you know, pick up some other films. And there's this whole big misunderstanding and she like goes along with it, endearing her to you. But right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that was like just so classic and great scene. Yeah, yeah. I would like to recall out the Center for Lesbian Information and Technology. <laughs> it's, so <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Uh, clipped. It was great. Yeah. And I I was sad to Google it and find that such a place does not now exist for real. So I hope that someone creates Clipped. <laughs> I know. I'm kind of surprised. Yeah. It's such a great name. <laughs> it's so perfect. So related to that, one of the things that I really, really loved about this film was all the weird cameos, like super unexpected for this low budget film Yeah, yeah. that came out in 96 with a budget of like 300K. First of all, if you look at the cast that's credited, it's it's crazy. There's a ton of people. But then there's all these like unexpected characters in this film, including Sarah Schulman, who plays the clit archivist. And she is actually like a very famous novelist and playwright. She's a gay activist, AIDS historian. She was part of the Lesbian Avengers. If I'm not going to mm-hmm. go into who they are, but if you don't know, like Google Lesbian Avengers. But yeah, she plays like the sort of zany clip archivist <laughs> yeah. who like gatekeeps her from recording images of this yeah. this box of archived photos of, you know, Faye that's like off in some corner somewhere, you know, that has been totally disregarded. But I'll just go over a little bit of the other cameos. So there's obviously Camille Paglia, which I mentioned earlier, who I didn't know could like not take herself so seriously, I guess. <laughs> I should say. But she like basically makes fun of academics in this role where she like compares the Italian experience to like being black and like something about yeah. the Italian flag is like yeah. the water, watermelon. Oh my <laughs> god! it's like, whoa, what's going on? But it's pretty freaking funny. I think she is and was a professor in Philly at the time because I was wondering, mm-hmm. I was like, what's the connection there? And then the librarian, another gatekeeper who is like... Very dismissive, yeah. Yeah, so that's David Rakoff who was a pretty well-known gay poet, essayist, this American Life contributor... But um, I was like, whoa, what's he doing here? <laughs> I still don't know yeah. what the connection is. And then there's Toshi Reagan, I think was her name. She, he, she plays a street musician. Um, oh, she's, yeah. according to Heather, like famous in lesbian circles. <laughs> I think she did like the score for the film as well. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then as you were talking about earlier, Zoe Leonard, who's like a very famous New York photographer. She wasn't in the film, but she designed the 30s and 40s photographs and newsreels for the archive stuff. And I think that ultimately came out to like 82 photographs, oh, wow. which is wild. Yeah. And then, of course, Cheryl Dunier's mother, Irene Dutier, is in mm-hmm. the movie as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like there's a ton more, but those are the ones that I caught while I was watching it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about one of my bigger things that I Ooh, loved about it. Here and we go. <laughs> it was the representation available to communities like an intersection of communities especially that doesn't get a lot of airtime right so um and i think cheryl dunier talks about this in one of her interviews but you don't get to see a lot of different types of black people you know it feels more like Mm -hmm. a monolith Mm -hmm. the way that black people and you know people of color in general are represented in tv and film even now but just seeing not just so many different black people but also different black lesbians was really incredible that was so nice it felt like such a a warm intimate depiction of of all these people so i thought that was really really great and very necessary and still very necessary unfortunately yeah i think that is another reason why i feel like this film was so ahead of its time like it shouldn't have been right it's unfortunate (laughs) that this was revolutionary in a sense but i feel like it's still ahead of its time in that you still don't get films like that it's kind of (laughs) mind-blowing to be honest. Yeah. But watching them, you know, watching them like navigate the dating world together and their friendships and their fights, you know, their arguments. It was great. Like, where else do I see that? You know, besides maybe the the thing that Lena Waif did for well, all the stuff that she does kind of, but the thing that she did for Modern Love where she focused on her relationship or not hers, but, you know, a single relationship that 
she depicted. Yeah, it just felt like such a rare kind of depiction. Yeah. Something else that stood out to me was, even though this film, I think, is described often as like a romantic comedy. I'm not sure if I agree with that. (laughs) Well, like, first, I love that she actually didn't, like, end up with Gwen's character. Yeah, yeah. But the way that 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 sort of fizzled out was, I kind of loved it because it wasn't like this big blow up. It was just kind of like, oh, yeah, we're no longer together. Yeah. And in the end of the film, it's interesting because it's like there's no real resolutions in a way. Like she she plans to meet up with June, but then that doesn't work out. She gets this letter from June Mm -hmm. instead. Yeah. Her relationship with Tamara is, you know, Mm -hmm. not doing well. And then she breaks up with or she and Gwen's character breaks up. It's like all these things have gone wrong, but it doesn't feel like a downer in the end. Right. Yeah. 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 And all through the film, too, the way that like conflict arises is really interesting. It kind of shows up in the form of gatekeeping, often by like white people, Mm. (laughs) you know, like the librarian, the clit activist. She's like arrested at one point. Yeah. All these obstacles. But she like keeps moving forward and there is kind of like a lightness to it like it's very watchable but it's also dealing with like super heavy topics right yeah but in the end you don't feel like sorry for her you feel kind of like hopeful and excited you know yeah yeah I feel like that lack of resolution is very similar to the story that she ends up telling about like Faye yeah because she doesn't really get to tie up a bunch of loose ends there either yeah and I like what June said at the end about how like Faye paved the way for people like you so it feels like you feel like the direct connection in the end yeah yeah so I think my the biggest thing that I love about this film it's probably gonna be the same as mine (laughs) I don't know I well I I, maybe but it's just the concept is so mind-blowing literally they like I wrote the general concept of the film okay great (laughs) that's awesome It's like, what? I just, you know, it's so when I first watched Portrait and realized what Celine Siama was doing with Marianne's character specifically, I was like, wow, what an amazing idea, right? And Cheryl Dunye basically did it in such a robust way. Like Celine has also actually also said that she doesn't believe in creating like backstories for her, her characters. Like she just wants them to be who they are on the screen. And that's great, you know, obviously. But Dunye has done... um kind of the exact opposite like the same thing but the the complete other side in that she's created this entire like history for this woman who doesn't actually exist and created a narrative that we will never see you know like even if you get all the photographs you know you get the sense that there's so much more of this person in Dunier's head and I think that's what makes her feel very real you know like it feels like are you sure this person doesn't exist because she seems to. And that's, you know, that's largely due to, that's almost entirely due to what Charles Genier has done with this this movie. It's really incredible, like really mind-blowing. Yeah. So I also, like in my notes, I wrote like the concept, but a slightly different angle of that, which is, mm-hmm. I feel like unlike any f- other films at the time, and even most films now with like a few exceptions, what's amazing to me is the point of view of this film. She's not showing us a story about being an outsider and about being like othered and about like the fear of yeah. being discovered for yeah. being gay. It's all irrelevant. Like we didn't even talk about when does it get right, gay yeah. for this film because <laughs> the whole fucking film is gay. You are yeah. you are in this like lesbian world where there's no question about whether you're different. You're like this in this immersive experience in her world. And it's like clearly through her lens. And what's mind-blowing about this film is that it is probably, like, the most pure example of the lesbian gaze and, like, the lesbian lens compared to, like, any other lesbian yeah. film that's, like, maybe ever existed, with the exception of maybe Portrait. And I feel like that's where the <laughs> right. the parallels are. Yeah. You're still not getting films like yeah. this. We're still getting movies like Happiest Season where it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, I might get caught. I'm ashamed yeah. of being gay. Oh, I'm not saying there's not a world where both of those things can exist. Right. But there is right, so right. much bias towards that in terms of you know funding from Hollywood or whatever so I think it's so amazing that this came out in 96 she is so sure of herself and so comfortable in Mm -hmm. her skin she talks about this I listened to this podcast that it was actually a city arts and lecture Mm -hmm. interview thing that was released as a podcast and she talks about how people were like oh wow you were invisible and now you're visible and she's like I was never invisible like I was like always out (laughs) I was like never I mean she I'm sure she did come out of the closet at some point yeah but this film feels like she was always out of the closet. There was never a closet. Yeah. And so I'm just like blown away by the existence of this because you still don't have it today. Yeah. I 
really chafe at the term unapologetic, yeah, you know, but know. it's very, I feel like if you're going to use it, this is a really good context for it because it's like she's never, it's always just been like, yep, black lesbian director. This is what I do. This is, this is who I am. And yeah, and it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And it, it's in this way where it's like, you know, I think a lot of people consider this film groundbreaking and I think it, it is. But I feel like the way in which it's presented to the world, it's as if she wasn't like trying to break ground. She was just like right. showing yeah, yeah, yeah. the world what yeah, the exactly. life that she was already living in a sense, you know? Yeah. One other thing I wanted to touch upon, because I, I mentioned the queer new wave or new queer cinema a few times. And this was kind of like sort of in the middle of it, probably. But just in case people don't have that background or the context for that. Um, so this term for this movement was coined in the early 90s by... Be Ruby Rich. I don't know. Be Ruby Rich. Be Rich with Ruby. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. So it was a movement in filmmaking that was at once a rejection of the victim narratives that centered on like white middle class gay men and then also driven by like the outrage of the unchecked spread of AIDS. And then also, I think, made possible by this new newfound accessibility of camcorders. Hmm. I feel like all of these things came together. And then so you're getting in like the early 90s and upwards films that really are subverting the male gaze and even the gay male gaze in, in many ways. Yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to provide that context because I think it's important when you start to compare this film to like something like Desert Hearts, which is also, you know, a beautiful film in its own right. But then as we get further along and we're moving towards like Imagine Me and You and like everything else, <laughs> it's really interesting to kind of like examine this very special time in film history. Yep. So I think... We both liked it. <laughs> we both we both loved it very much. Yes. I know we've been half jokingly rating the films on the top 10 list because this film did not fall on the top 10 list of which I am not bitter about at all. <laughs> no, but I, I think I, can tell. I think this sort of like transcends a rating for me. I don't know. Yeah. So we're going to skip that this time. And what we're going to do instead is open the sapphic culture vault. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel that rush of warm, moist air? Oh my god. <laughs> I do now. Whoa. Okay. Do you hear the creak of the door? The large bank vault style door? Is that a creaky? I feel like that's a... I don't... Oh, maybe... What, what, what would the... Yeah, yeah, I guess I can... so. A little bit of a creak. Oh, maybe you can hear like the locks turning or whatever. Oh. The tumblers, oh, yeah. you know, clicking into place. <laughs> wow. As we enter the okay. lesbian club. I don't know. No, the then there wouldn't be code. like There wouldn't be tumblers either if we're What's like What's the code? Code. Anyway, anyway. You okay. don't know the code? <laughs> I was just checking to see if you know the code. Oh my god. No. How do you think we open the door? Oh man. Of course I know the code. I open the door. I cannot be trusted with this code. <laughs> <laughs> It's boobs. It's A O O eight. It's like so queer. Yeah. <laughs> oh great. Yeah. You all know the code. Twenty eight. Oh, it's just twenty eight. <laughs> so simple. No, it's eight zero zero eight five two eight. No, it's two eight eight zero zero eight five. Oh yeah, yeah. It's two boobs. No, it's, it's twenty eight it boobs. Oh, it's two oh. eight eight. Wait, what? Because it could be two eight zero. Oh shit! Oh fuck. Two boobs. Two boobs. Oh that's, my god. I'm getting that tattooed code. right now. Oh my god. No. Forget not. 28. <laughs> but like in like digital like yes. font, of course, right? So that No, no, can... no. I'll do the Wait. 28 in like the portrait font and then the oh, rest digital. Oh, wow. Nice, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then if you flip it over, is it still Oh, no, you're right. It has to all be two boobs. I don't know. Oh, I need more sleep and it's going to be a long weekend. Okay. okay. All right. What are we putting What's in the going vault? in? So this one is actually going to make me a little bit sad. But oh, cause, why? Because it's going away forever? It's lesbian bars. And I miss them. So you have nothing to put in the vault is what you're saying. I know. I have like five things. Oh, to put so sad. Or something. Oh. Man, it's just like what a special place they are and were, you know? And even, you know what? I'll add like an addendum to this entry, which would be lesbian nights, which is fine. You know, it's like you have like a gay bar or whatever. And it's like. And then Thursday yeah. night is like girl bar or whatever. Club U-Haul. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like just having 
a lesbian space that was really just there for fun and not like edification Mm -hmm. which is i feel like a lot of our events sometimes be which are great you know but just having a place to go was really nice especially in my early gay days and i wish there were more around and i'm glad that there are still like queer bars around but having a lesbian specific place was really really special so into the vault with you yeah lexington and whatever i was weirdly just talking to david about this and he was like why aren't there lesbian bars and then he was like looking up the closest in la because i used to live in la and you know there were a few that i went to and i was like wait those are gone yes they are gone yeah he's like the closest one is in san diego i'm like what yep yeah (sighs) so fucked up well i'm glad you're archiving it in the vaults forever for us to appreciate (laughs) so sad so they'll, they'll be there in the vault for us to visit whenever we want whatever we want just have to enter this dark, moist vault to get there. <laughs> Sadly, type in two eight zero zero eight five. Uh, there's like a urine check too, like to see if you are you urinating oh, hard enough to enter yeah. the vault. It like scans your body for the urine. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm putting in this week is similar in that it's lesbian. Wait, everything is lesbian. <laughs> Every, everything's supposed it's to be all related. <laughs> I'm gonna put multi tools in the vaults. Love it. Yeah. I think that I was a multi tool connoisseur before I was even conscious of my gayness. I've always uh-huh. loved a good yeah, multi tool. Totally same. Mm-hmm. Sometimes to a fault because I feel like I don't like single purpose tools and even though in some yeah. cases single purpose <laughs> tools are designed better They're so than much better. Like yeah. I've definitely purchased multi-tools where that didn't need to be a multi-tool. <laughs> you know, no, I'm not talking about just like Leatherman or like Swiss Army knives, but like there yeah, are often things yeah, yeah. that are like multiple things combined into one that don't need to be, you know, like <laughs> I don't know what's a good example. Like glasses and a hat. Like a yeah, hat. exactly. No, <laughs> seriously, I'd be like, wait. I like that both shut of our up. examples were like hats. Yeah, it's great. Sold. Take my money. Pants that can become a backpack. Literally, like, oh I God. almost purchased a giant poncho that is also like a picnic blanket. <laughs> I was like, Audrey, stop. No, don't do it. I would. I would. There is. No, I know what you mean. Like, there's this feeling mm-hmm. that you get when you see an item that's like incredibly <laughs> useful. And you're like, oh, my gosh. It's a lesbian feeling. What could my life be like if I had a poncho exactly. blanket? Next level gay. I remember, though, like as a little kid, I've, you know, probably like maybe eight or nine or something, really wanting a Swiss Army knife. Oh. Like, the first time I saw a Swiss Army knife, um, I think before that I had, I think it was called, like, an eight-in-one optic wonder, and it was it had, like, a compass, oh, a signal mirror. Oh, nice. Binoculars, yes. a magnifying glass, you know, like, all these things. Yes. And so I think that was my first foray into multi-functional <laughs> equipment. Yeah. If not, like, McDonald's probably had something that was... That had a couple of functions. But then, like, when I found out about Swiss Army knives, like, probably in, like, some encyclopedia brown book or something, I was like, ah, must have. I must, I must have this. I don't even know why. Like, yeah. what am I using knives for as an eight-year-old? But I really needed it. Why does it. it resonate with us? It feels like just, I like the idea of being prepared. I think that has something to do yeah. with it. And it's like, how can you be more prepared than, than if you have, like, this thing that does everything, you know? Yeah, like now I have 12 tools on exactly. me. Exactly, and it's like tiny. All of them are kind of <laughs> shitty, but I have them. Like, yeah. No, I think you're right, though. Like that preparedness that like, ah, yes, I'm finally prepared. Yeah. For what, though? I don't know. Well, yeah, and I wonder if it's because it's like as queer people, we have to feel more prepared or something. Like there's something. To, I, don't I don't know. know. I'm yeah. really curious about like yeah. the the psychology behind it is but I also just like it just occurred to me that like transformers are lesbian because they're like yes. the ultimate multi-tool in a way and like when I was oh five I had a little transformers watch that was like a digital watch and ah, also like a yeah. little transformer <laughs> totally yeah so maybe that was the beginning of it but just a little multi-tool history for you so um they <laughs> date back at least wow. as far as the middle roman times however many of those were used for eating the first Leatherman dates back to 1983. I think some dude named like Tim Leatherman <laughs> came up with them. Oh my gosh. The Swiss yeah. Army knife dates back to the 1880s, but pocket knives are mentioned as early as, uh, I don't know, whenever Moby Dick came out because they're mentioned in Moby Dick and maybe even before that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so 
there's a little bit of fun fact Thank you. for you, fun facts, uh, the multi-tool. A little lesbian edification <laughs> right here. But if you have anything that you would like to <laughs> walk down this cave, punch in 28280085s <laughs> Oh my God, I can't talk. 280085. Now that you know our lesbian secret code. code if there's anything that you would like to put into this sapphic culture vault let us know there's plenty of space <laughs> that sounds like an innuendo and i don't know why it's quite cavernous down here <laughs> a lot of shelves <laughs> I don't know if, if you, you know, know what i mean, I, mean. <laughs> I don't actually know what we mean so anyway yeah you can email us at sapphiccultureclub at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at sapphiccultureclub, or you can tweet to us at sapphicpodcast. Also, if what we talked about today with the watermelon woman sparked any thoughts, please feel free to share those with us on those platforms as well. Also, if it sparked any joy, let us know. Yay. <laughs> oh, God. If it sparked rage, yeah. I don't want to hear about it. Just kidding, I do. <laughs> Lastly, you can find a link to the episode transcript and links to other things we mentioned in the description of the episode, wherever you're listening to this podcast. In two weeks, we will be talking about, hopefully if, all, if scheduling works out, <laughs> the next film on the top 10 list, number eight. And it's bound. Bound. You're bound to enjoy it. Yay. Bye. Perfect. Bye.